You can join me in opening your Bibles to the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. It's on page 976. We're working through this book of Ephesians, and we've seen that the first half of this letter that the apostle wrote to this group of Christians in the first century in Ephesus is about gospel doctrine or the teaching of God's grace to us through Jesus. It's about our identity and who we are in Jesus when we become Christians. So it's the realities that are true of us that we learn to celebrate. And then the second half of this letter moves to all the implications of this new reality for all of life. How does what God has done for us in Jesus apply to every single aspect of our lives? So it shows us that we have a new identity and in a new way of living. And so we're in the first half this morning, still in these first three chapters, and we come to a text that explains why this book does move from who we are to how we live. It shows us that when someone becomes a Christian, they're not just forgiven, they're also transformed to live a new life of good works. So I wonder, for all of us and each of you, how much do you expect to change in your life as a Christian. I'm not talking about your circumstances. I'm not talking about your life circumstances changing. The Lord does not promise us health or wealth or forms of prosperity in this life before the resurrection. In fact, He promises suffering. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your attitudes, your, the words you speak, the tone with which you speak them, your actions, your habits and behaviors your tone and your temper. How much do you expect to change in your life? Now, there's two perspectives, or more than two, but two maybe extreme perspectives uh, in answering this question. Some think that Christians can become perfect in this life before death, before the return of Jesus, that Christians can reach a place in life where they no longer knowingly sin at all. This view gained, gained prominence in the 17 and 1800s, especially in some Methodist circles. Another perspective says the opposite. It says that Christians remain unchanged. The Christian life means we remain just as sinful as we were when we entered the Christian life, so there's no hope of actually getting better in this life. Now, those are very different expectations of the Christian life, aren't they? Becoming perfect or not changing at all. We're totally depraved before we come to Christ, which doesn't mean we're bad as we can possibly be. It means that every part of our life, thoughts, attitudes, actions, is tainted by sin. That's how we come in, and that perspective is saying we stay that way. So even if you don't land in one of those places in your mind or kind of theologically, you may still function according to one of those views and not even realize it, or you might lean far in one of those directions. For example, you may not see much sin in your life. In the past few weeks, maybe you haven't asked the Lord or another person for forgiveness at all for anything. And if that's true, you, you should ask yourself the question, am I sinning a lot and just not actually asking the Lord and other people for forgiveness? And if so, that's an issue you want to think through. Um, because every time we sin, we should ask for forgiveness of the Lord and whoever we've wronged. Um, or maybe you just don't see the sin in your life. You don't see any real problems. You're operating in life as though you have arrived 
at kind of a place of relative perfection. You wouldn't say you're perfect, but really you'd view your errors more as just, you know, we're all humans. Not that I'm a sinner, it's just that I'm just not God. I'm just not perfect like Him. Or maybe you lean on the other, toward the other side. Maybe you don't see anything except moral failure in your life, moment by moment by moment, and you do not think it's possible to grow. You keep letting people down. You let yourself down. You think God is just perpetually disappointed with you and impossible to please. We so often function according to one of these two perspectives regarding good works in our lives. But the biblical vision is neither immediate perfection nor hopeless stagnancy. It's progressive but real transformation. When God makes someone a Christian, He gives them a new heart. If you are trusting in Jesus, this has already happened to you. If you've not yet come to Christ, this can happen to you. He gives you a new heart with new desires that affect your life, your thoughts, your attitudes, your tones, your actions, and you actually do grow to become like Jesus, not perfectly overnight, but progressively over a lifetime. And here's why this is important as well for every one of us in every aspect of life, um, in thinking about just even good works, works that the Lord could even say well done to, good works, because uh, the, the good works that the Bible talks about are not necessarily these things that we think of as a heroic deeds, though they are heroic in a sense. It's not just about showing up to church on Sundays and giving finances for good causes. It actually affects every part of what we do in our vocations. So many of us are working, either in paid work or volunteer work, either in the home or out of the home, either as a worker or as a homemaker. And we need to know that our work our actions, our endeavors matter. So much of our life is lived outside of this building, and we need to know that it matters, and it matters to God, and we can actually do good work that pleases the Lord. So, this morning we're going to focus on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, and let's read this together and then ask the Lord's help, because this text speaks right into this topic. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray one more time together. Our Father, we did just pray through singing that You would teach our hearts to love Your Word, that we would see Your beauty in Jesus on every page of the Bible, and that we would respond with affection and love for You and transformation. So we pray that the seed of Your Word would be planted deep in us and that it would cause us to bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And so we pray that You would give us right thinking and deep right affections for you, about you and for you this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this text we just read shows us the role of good works in the Christian life. And we see three realities here that help us understand the significance of good works. We have 
a new identity, a new purpose, and a new influence. Those are the three things that we see, the three uh, realities that we see to help us understand the significance of good work. So we'll walk through each of those three. So first, Christians have a new identity. So much of how we think about life and what we do flows from our sense of identity, our sense of who we are. If you think you are worthless, then you will likely, in many situations in life, stay in the shadows and out of the way. Or you will be working to try to prove yourself through some measure of accomplishments and approval in people's eyes, to prove that you're not worthless, or at least to convince people you're not. If you think, on the other hand, that you are a self-made person, then you will try to maintain that sense of self-worth and accomplishment. You'll strive to prove that you are self-made and you can succeed. But as Christians, we look at what's now true of us right here in verse 10. We are His workmanship. His is God's, of course, here. We are God's workmanship. He's the one who created us in the first place, and He's the one who has given new life to us as believers in Jesus. We are His. We are not self-made. We are God-made. Everything that we have is a gift of grace that's good. And we're not just God's, we're God's workmanship. That's a word that's often used to draw attention to someone's craftsmanship or skill in creating something. And this says that we are His workmanship. And this is about what happens when God makes someone become a Christian, when someone becomes a follower of Jesus. It's true that God created everyone, right? I mean, this creation and every human being is a product of God's design and careful creativity and workmanship. But here, this is showing that Christians, at the point of being given new life in Christ, are His workmanship. That's what this is referring to. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you have experienced what we talked about a couple weeks ago, the new birth. We're being born again, which, which is this reality that happens that we're all born into this life spiritually dead, but when we become Christians, God makes us spiritually alive. Jesus said we are born again. He said you must be born again, referring to this reality. We are spiritually risen from the dead, raised from the dead. And God, this he's saying right here, has done this with care and design. We are His workmanship. And then the next word takes us further. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Actually, that word workmanship refers to the same thing. It's often used to say it's creation. We are His creation created in Christ Jesus. And that word creation is more significant than we may think at first. Paul uses this word in many other contexts to refer to Christians being a new creation. And that's what he has in mind here, because he's not talking about how God made us and created us as human beings, but how he recreated us as Christians. So here's a couple of examples. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says this, an incredibly important statement for understanding what in the world it means to be a Christian. What happened to us when we became Christians? What is this life for? He says this, if anyone is in Christ, in the sphere of Christ's rule, united to him by faith, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Galatians 6.15, he says that what matters about our identity now is this. We are a new creation. Later in this same letter of Ephesians, in chapter 4, verse 24, you can see how he uses this same word and idea. He says that we're to be renewed and to put on the new self created after, created after the likeness of God 
in true righteousness and holiness. So we have a new self, and this self is created after the likeness of God. So here's the picture. When someone becomes a Christian, when you become a Christian, you were spiritually dead. And when we become a Christian, we experience this new birth. God gives us spiritual life, and that's viewed as the new creation. Now, why does Paul refer to Christians with this language of creation and new creation so often? Why is it so important? And the answer is because Paul is thinking really big picture here. This idea of being a new creation comes from the Old Testament. That's where he got it. He didn't make it up. It's not just kind of an offhanded comment. He got this from the Old Testament and especially in the book of Isaiah. Here's what the prophet Isaiah said. He, you know, the world is God's creation. God created the world. He originally made it good, but then humanity sinned and this world's been broken ever since at every level. Both our own uh, psychological experience, our, our sinful nature, but also the created world itself is broken uh, with arid deserts and hurricanes and tornadoes. This, this world, Paul says, elsewhere, elsewhere is groaning, and it's groaning for something to happen. It's groaning for a new creation. It's groaning for a new heavens and new earth. It's groaning, for, it's groaning for the renewal of all things. And the prophet Isaiah spoke about this, and he said that that renewal will be called a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth that God will create. And the Apostle Peter says this is the home of righteousness. And so the whole world is going to be fixed, all will be made new, and all will be set right. And all of those who are united to Jesus by faith will be there and will be perfectly transformed. So that's where we actually will become perfect um, in that time. So sin will be gone, sickness will be gone, sorrow will be gone, everything will be made new. This is where history is headed. We're part of a story, and this is where the storyline is moving, and we're caught up in this. And now here's the surprise of Jesus. That new creation's out in the future, but when Jesus rose from the dead, that new, new creation broke into the present reality in the middle of history. Jesus is the first one risen from the dead. From the, the Old Testament's perspective, it often talked about this new creation coming, and, and with that new creation, there'd be the resurrection of God's people from the dead. The whole world would be renewed. God's people would be raised from the dead with new bodies, renewed bodies. And when Jesus rose from the dead, the unexpected thing happened, and that is that resurrection, new creation reality popped up right in the middle of history. And Jesus is the first part of the new creation. Now, here's the second surprise. When you and I trust in Him, when we become Christians, we are made alive with Him, and we are made to be part of this new creation, which means that we are now part of this new creation life that's already breaking into the world. The transforming power that God will bring to the plants and the animals and the trees and the whole creation, that power, that renewing power is already at work in you spiritually, in your heart, in your internal world and reality. Isaiah said that this would happen when God pours out His Spirit on the world, and Jesus, risen from the dead, has poured out His Spirit in His people, on His people, to bring this new creational renewal in our hearts. Now, we don't experience this yet physically, right? We all know that, and we feel it year after year that goes on, uh, because that day's coming. But already ahead of time, our inner nature is being renewed. Our outer nature is wasting away. 
Our inner nature is being renewed day by day, as Paul says elsewhere. So this future new creational reality has already begun. That future world where all of God's people will be renewed and will trust the Lord with hearts full of affection, that future world has begun happening now, and that is your identity in Christ. We're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So in the first creation, Adam and Eve were created to enjoy the world and then reflect God's character in the world. They were made to reflect God's uh, moral beauty in the world. They were, they were to r- rule the world as God would rule the world, to take care of the world as God would take care of the world. But they and every human since, all of us, have failed in that calling. And so the new creation is the place where it will all be restored and all be made new. And what Paul is saying is that's broken into the present reality. The Lord is restoring us to our original calling to reflect God's glory in the world. So this is who you are in Christ. You matter to God. God himself is going to renew all things, and he has chosen to begin that process with you. Your life matters. And so this is why we can avoid the two errors I mentioned at the beginning. One view says we can be perfect in this life. That's not true. We have to wait for the resurrection for that to happen, for the new creation to come in the future. That's the home of perfect righteousness. But others think there's no change at all. We get forgiveness, and that's it. God leaves us where he finds us. That's not true either. Because when we become Christian, God's always, when we become Christians, God always gives us two gifts, not one. He always gives us both forgiveness and transformation. He gives us pardon for our guilt and the power to grow. They always are together. He never gives one without the other. So this is our new identity. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are right now a new creation. And this new identity leads to receiving a new purpose. So that's the second reality we see here. We have a new purpose. What's that purpose? In two words, good works. It's what we see in verse 10. You can read it with me. For we are his workmanship created or newly created, recreated in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is one of God's central purposes in saving you, in making you a new creation, that you would live a new kind of life, a life of good works. It's similar to what we saw a few weeks ago at the very beginning of Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 4. You can just glance back there. It says, even as, he has cho- sorry, even as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, so election, God has chosen people to be saved before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. So do you see the purpose there? The purpose of God even choosing people is that they might be transformed to live holy and blameless before him, to live transformed lives. Over and over in the New Testament, as you come across references to the cross of Jesus, why Jesus died for us, why Jesus gave his life for us, it's often connected with a purpose. Jesus died for us so that, or for this purpose. I'd encourage you to pay attention to this, because all throughout the New Testament, when the purpose is given, it's not just that we might be forgiven, it's that we might be transformed. Here's just one example. Titus 2, verse 14, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. Why did he give himself for us? 
to, purpose, redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Jesus went to the cross because he had in view the resurrection and then pouring out his spirit to create a new people who are zealous for good works. That's why he died. That's why he went to the cross. And so if this is one of the central reasons why Jesus died for you and me, This should be one of the central reasons why we keep breathing in life and why we go through our days. When we step out in a new day, this is why he's giving us this new day. It should become a central purpose of our lives now. Now, we need to clarify a couple things. Some of you may be thinking, maybe this makes you a little nervous. This is putting too much of an emphasis on good works in the Christian life. So here are three essential truths that Paul teaches us about good works here. He gives us really a mini-theology of good works. And this is crucial to understand. There is so much confusion among Christians and the evangelical church as, as, as a whole, it seems, even in these past decades, uh, that con- confusion that comes from misunderstanding these three truths. So he, here they are. First, good works are not the ground of our salvation. God does not save us because of our good works. It couldn't be clearer in verses 8 and 9 here. So, notice this with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This affirms what we sometimes refer to um, in our Reformational and Protestant heritage as the five solas of the Reformation. So, the word sola means alone or only. We are justified or just saved. We're accepted by God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and we believe this on the authority of God's Word alone. And we see these here. We're saved by grace alone. So God doesn't accept us based upon anything we do. We are all unworthy because we've fallen short of the glory of God. Just like we read earlier this morning, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. Nobody was cleaning up their act. While we are still sinners, Christ gave himself for us. Grace alone. We're saved also through faith alone. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. So we come with empty hands of faith, holding them out before the Lord to receive his forgiving and transforming grace. And we're saved in Christ alone. God accepts us because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins. And then he rose again from the dead. He died the death we deserve to die. He takes our sins upon himself so that we can be clothed in his righteousness, completely forgiven and made declared righteous. And so we're saved by the work of Christ alone. And then this results in the glory of God alone. And that's why God saves us this way. Verse 9, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. No boasting in the Christian life except in the Lord. No boasting in the gospel culture in the church of anything we do, only boasting in the Lord. Local churches should be a big no boasting allowed sign. So that wouldn't be good. Really, it's boasting in the Lord alone sign. Let's not be negative about it. But sometimes we need to hear that because there's a lot of boasting in in our world that we can get caught up into. So we all come needy and broken and anything we receive, even the transforming power of grace, are from the Lord. The Christian life is a humbled life, so good works are not the ground of our salvation. So that's the first 
truth about good works. Second, good works are the result of being saved by grace. This is what Paul says next in verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And good works are not optional in the Christian life. They're not just for really committed Christians. The New Testament doesn't say, you're saved by trusting in Jesus, and you know, you may not change at all. It'd be really good if you did. Good works are important. Actually, following Jesus as a disciple is a good idea. But yeah, you know, once saved, always saved, even if nothing in your life changes at all. And that's not the New Testament teaching. The New Testament teaching is once saved, always saved, and that salvation includes transformation. And so you will persevere. You will bear fruit. It's not optional. So the New Testament all throughout has this assumption. Every Christian is a new creation and born again, and they will do good works. Now, maybe just a few, and maybe a lot in one season, and very few in another season. I mean, we, we are capable of some incredible uh, failing and falling in sin, even as Christians, but we are made for good works, and we will bear some. So, here's a way to think about it. Good works are not the ground of our salvation like we just saw, but they are the necessary evidence of our salvation. They're the evidence that the Lord saved us, and it's a necessary evidence. So, in other words, think of it like this. Um, we're going to apple orchards. I think we're going maybe this afternoon. Um, you go to an apple orchard, you expect to see apple trees there, and you can tell if there's an apple tree standing in front of you if there's apples there. Now, I guess here's where the illustration breaks down. Sometimes the trees at apple orchards don't have apples, but it's not because it didn't bear any. It's because people already took them, right? But the point is, apple trees bear apples. You can tell if you're looking at an apple tree if it has apples. Apple trees bear apples. Every apple tree will produce some. Some many, some only few. Here's how the Apostle John put it in 1 John 2, 3 to 4. So listen to this. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Do you want to know that you've come to know Jesus? Here's how you can tell, according to the Apostle John. By this we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. I hope that doesn't surprise you. He doesn't just say, if you believe in Jesus, though that's how you're saved. He says that because those who believe in Jesus are new creations, and they begin to obey God's commandments, not perfectly, but progressively. So by this, you can know that you've come to know him, that we keep his commandments. John goes on to say this, whoever says, I know him. So if someone says, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus. He says, okay, whoever says that, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth's not in him. So, the Christian life is people who say they know Jesus, and they keep his commandments. Not perfectly, but progressively. There's no such thing as someone who's a new creation in Christ who is not beginning in some way to live differently, even in small ways, even in slow ways. So, these are the first two essential truths about works. We're not saved by good works, but neither are we saved in the end without good works. And think about what Paul's saying here. Doesn't this just make perfect sense in light of our new identity as being new creations in Christ? Remember, think big picture, the big storyline of the Bible. 
creation. God created humanity to bear good works, to reflect His character. We have completely fouled that up through our sin. And God is bringing redemption to the world, and He's not doing it by just saying, okay, everybody's in rebellion against me. I'm going to forgive a few people, leave them in rebellion, but give some advice. You know, it'd be really good if some of you started actually changing. No, God's He's restoring what was lost, which is both the penalty for our sin and the power of sin in our life. He's bringing the new creation already in the world. And that new creation is not just seen in people forgiven, but people transformed, people receiving grace. And so thrilled by that grace that they say, I love you. And if Jesus said, if you love me, you obey my commands. Do you see the organic connection there that these aren't faith and works are not completely um, isolated from one another? They're distinct, but they're never separated. If you trust the Lord, you will obey him. Uh, Which is why we, we say to our boys all the time, if they disobey, we always say, you didn't trust me. When I told you this, you didn't trust my word. Uh, All sin comes from unbelief, and when we trust the Lord, there's a psychological dynamic that happens with true faith that actually produces, we love the Lord, and if we love Him, we begin to honor Him. Again, progressively, not perfectly. So the new creation has dawned. Okay, so in light of that, here's the third essential truth, and this is great news. Good works are part of the gift of salvation. Look at the final thing Paul says about works here in verse 10. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works are not just God's purpose for us, His recommendation to us, His command to us. They're His gift to us. He has prepared specific good works ahead of time that we should walk in them. This is incredible. God planned for us to do certain good works. The life of good works is itself God's plan. He's involved in our lives producing good works. This doesn't mean that we're robots, but it does mean that God is mysteriously involved in our interiority in such a way that we do these good works. And this is part of the promise of the new covenant that the prophets of the Old Testament talked about that has dawned in Jesus. So listen to Ezekiel 36 verse 27. I think, just I mean, write this down. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible for understanding uh, the role of good works in the Christian life and, and why the things I'm saying are, are even true. This is, this is where Paul and the New Testament authors got it. So Ezekiel 36 verse 27, God says this, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the answer to the problem of Israel in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with the Bible, been a Christian for a while, you've jumped in the Old Testament all, you see Israel, you're like, what is their problem, right? I mean, the nations, yes, they don't know the Lord, okay, but Israel rescued, given God's commands, given His presence, and Moment by moment, generation after generation, completely failed. There's a, there's a remnant, there's a few who trust him and know him. By and large, they do not know the Lord. And so the Lord says, I'm going to give a new covenant that's not like the old. And here's what the new covenant's going to bring. It's going to bring full forgiveness. All the people in this covenant will know me, and I'm going to cause them to obey. They're actually going to live transformed lives. So this verse again, Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So, Christian brother and sister, if you see in your life that there's evidence of transformation and you have good works, it is because the Lord, centuries past, said, one day 
I will send my son, and he will die and rise again so that you might be forgiven and that you might have the Holy Spirit poured out into your heart, that you might be caused to walk in God's statutes, and that you might be careful to obey his rules. Now, we're waiting for the full fulfillment of that in the new creation to come, but the new creation is broken into the present reality, and we have this promise being fulfilled among us. This is why there's no boasting in anything in the Christian life, because any good work that you worked in your life, the Lord caused you to do it by His grace and mercy and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's good news. This is part of the good news of the new covenant that Jesus brought, and it's good news because if God didn't do this, we would still be in our sins completely in bondage, but He's transformed us and given us His Spirit. So, anytime a Christian does anything good, they should stop and say, thank you, Lord. Thanks for doing that through me. Thanks for empowering me to do that. Okay, so we have a new identity as part of a new creation that comes with a new purpose, living in good works. And third, we have a new influence so that we can live this new life. We can think of this in many different ways. The Spirit being poured out into us is one new influence. Um, The new heart is another influence. Um, But let's just consider what we see from this text. This very last phrase of verse 10 uses this image of walking to refer to a new lifestyle. Paul's saying that we now have a completely new way of living. All of life changes, and this is in contrast to a previous way of living. So this idea of walking is actually at both ends of this section in verses 1 to 10. Do you see this? So Paul's come full circle here. Look back at verse 1 and 2, how he began this section. He says, and you were dead before becoming Christians. You were dead, spiritually dead, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Right? That was a way of life that was a, just a sinful neglect of God. But now, he's made us alive, he's made us new creations, and we have a new way of walking, a new way of living, and he has prepared good works for us to walk in. So, do you see those parallels at the beginning and end? You once walked and lived this way, now you walk and live a new way. So, here's what this means for us. It means that the previous sources of influence that influence our lives to live a certain way, the power of those is broken. And we have a new set of influences. So Paul says that when we were spiritually dead, there were three sources of influence in our lives. But now that we're in a new creation, those three influences have lost their power decisively. Not completely yet, but decisively. So for us to grow, uh, we need to understand this. And we have to understand what were, why did I live that way? Why did I do what I did? And why do I still find myself doing those things? What was influencing me then, and therefore, what is still influencing me now that I have power over now that I need to see and and make a clean break from? So let's think through each of these three influences here that he mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, and then see the contrast of these three with the new creation. So Paul says in verse 3, first, the, the first influence is called the flesh. He said that we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, the word flesh again, and the mind. Now, that may sound at first like he's talking about you know, sexual passions, but he's not. That would be included. He's actually talking about the influence that's under every sin. When the New Testament talks about sin, it's not just kind of a list of behaviors. It's, it's a deep thing, deep in our hearts with attitudes and values, and it comes from this mindset called the flesh. And this is a mindset that puts ourselves at the center of our values and at the center of our worlds. We displace God, and we put something else there, 
ultimately oriented toward ourself. So the flesh refers to the motivational drives behind our sins. It's the deep problem of the human condition. So the good news of the gospel is not just that we're forgiven for the sins that we did when we were influenced by the flesh. It's that the power of the flesh is broken as well. We're no longer controlled by the flesh. We have a new set of desires. God has placed himself at the affections of our heart now. And it begins to look, life begins to look as it was meant to be for the glory of Jesus. So walking in good works requires us to be aware of our motives, to be aware of how this self-centered mindset, this flesh, has influenced us for our lives and still influences us in degrees. So we need to be aware of that so that we can identify when we're doing something mainly just for ourselves, we're just using God and others to get what we want, rather than actually loving God and our neighbor. Second influence is the world. Look at verse 2 again. These sins in which you once walked or lived according to the course or age of this world. Uh, interesting that he uses the word age there. That's the, the word course could be translated age. I think that would be better because Paul often uses this age to talk about two ages. There's the age now of the current creation, and then there's the age to come of the new creation. So you see what Paul's saying here. He's like, we used to walk according to the age of this world, the old creation, the broken, fallen creation. But now we can walk according to the next age, the new creation that's broken into the present reality through Jesus. So what is the world? It's not referring to just all the people on the planet. When Paul talks about the world as an influence, he's referring to society's attitudes and preferences and habits. Um, David Wells has written on this in a number of his books, and he has a, a really helpful definition of worldliness. He puts it this way. It should be up here. So follow along with me. Worldliness is that system of values which in any culture has the fallen sinner at its center, which takes no account of God and His Word, and which therefore, so as a result of putting the fallen sinner at the center rather than God and His Word, here's what happens when a society does this. It therefore views sin as normal and righteousness as abnormal. That's helpful. I mean, that's just helpful to understand what's going on in the world. This is reality. And then he says this, it's, it thus gives great plausibility, believability, to what is morally wrong, and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. So the, the key phrase there is that uh, worldliness is what happens in a culture when you have people who are controlled by the flesh and they get together. <laughs> it's what one author calls corporate flesh. It's just our own selfishness created in community, and then put, you know, it's, it's what we do when we get together and form governments and business ventures and educational systems and have conversations in the workplace, in the neighborhood. It's just, it's just flesh kind of communally experienced. And what happens then is, just like in our own minds with our flesh and we're in the center, it makes sin look normal and righteousness look odd, strange, unfitting, weird, out of place. You'd kind of be looked, looked at oddly if you actually did the things that uh, reflect Jesus' character in the world. So it's the pattern of attitudes and behaviors and priorities that develop in any culture around the world of people who are influenced by their 
flesh is self-centered perspective. And so this gets expressed all over in policy and in law and in music and in entertainment and in movies and in advertising, and it gets expressed in everyday conversations. And all of this subtly influences us. I mean, we're part of the problem, and then that problem shapes us, this forms us. It creates a view of the world where certain things seem to us true and good and beautiful that aren't actually true or good or beautiful. And the things that really are true and good and beautiful seem kind of weird and strange to us, and we don't really want to do those things. So how do we live a life of good works now? Now that we're still in the world, still with some influence of the flesh, but with that now broken, what do we do? Well, we have to become, at minimum, aware of this reality. We have to see that the things that may feel right to us may not be right. According to God's world, we have to sift through everything in our culture and, and say, now, does this reflect God's values? I mean, would we be doing this in cre- if creation, like fall, the fall never happened, sin never entered the world? Would this be the movie we'd be watching? Would we laugh at those kinds of things? Or are we doing that because now we kind of have the self at the center and we've kind of pushed God out of our world and now these things are funny to us and these things we find entertaining and we really enjoy doing these things in secret? And thinking forward, are we going to be doing these things in the new creation? Will I be like gathering together with my friends and saying, hey, you've got to see this movie? And then will I laugh at those jokes? Um, so this is a, it's a new way of viewing the world that puts God at the center of the world. All right, third influence then is Satan. Verse 2, we lived according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other, by the way, Maybe just continue that conversation of worldliness at lunch or dinner. Um, there's a lot to think through there. Satan, the power, prince of the power of the air. There's a negative spiritual influence in the world. Hard to discern often how exactly Satan and other spirits influence our culture. But here's one thing we can do. We can look around at the world and see what Satan does like that's happening in the culture. I mean, and that would give us a sense of what not to participate in. So just look, look out, music, movies, government practices, conversations, attitudes on news stations, I mean, anything, and just ask, how happy is Satan about that? I mean, and it doesn't take much to think about that. What does Satan love? Well, we know from the Bible, he, he's a murderer from the beginning, he's the father of lies, he loves slander, he loves a bad attitude, he loves grumbling and complaining, uh, he loves thinking about world events that take, no, take God into account, not at all, and so just look at the world and be like, yeah, Satan would love what's going on here. Well, then don't participate in it, right? Because that would make him happy. You want to make the Lord happy. There's a whole new way of viewing the world now. So, even in your own life, if you find that you're about to lie to save a bit of money in your business, uh, that would please Satan. If you're about to yell at your spouse, Satan would be happy about that. And then after you do it, if you refuse to take ownership and say, I am sorry that was wrong, will you forgive me? Satan would love for you not to do that as well. Watching movies and shows and even news programs that make sin feel normal and righteousness seem abnormal should not feel as natural to us anymore. Those shows that move our emotions in those directions, we should be aware of that. So some entertainment does a great job of portraying lust and lying and hatred as evil. They actually help us, right, to say, yeah, I, I feel how I'm supposed to feel about that. And this, this movie has done a great job doing that. I mean, that's really healthy and helpful. That's a gift. But other times, we are moved to actually overlook sin or root for something that uh, should not be cheered on. 
So this idea of being a new creation gives us really this fundamental new question to ask of everything. If we're already part of the new creation to come, we ask, will I be doing this and celebrating this in the new creation to come? And if the answer is no, then I should not be doing this in the new creation that's dawned. And the Holy Spirit can give me the power to say no and to fight this. So, as we wrap up, I want to make four final observations. Very brief. First, all of this means that your mundane moments matter. Your new life of good works takes place often when no one else is looking. Changing diapers with a smile is one of those good works. Greeting your neighbor when you're outside rather than kind of hoping they don't see you and avoiding them is a good work. You don't need to go out and kind of change the world to feel like you're doing these good works. It's about your tone at the dinner table. It's about the quiet act of service to your neighbor. A friend of mine put it this way, most of life happens in mundane moments. The character of a person is revealed in being faithful in those moments. Second, this means your vocation matters. You are made so that all of life would reflect the glory of Christ and show the power of the Spirit. And for many of you, a primary place you do those good works is what you call your work, the place that you get the paycheck. It's not just a place to get the paycheck. It's a place not even just to share the gospel with people. It's a place to do good works, to reflect God's glory. So think through what you do with this question. How can I do my work in a way? I mean, just think about this as you're headed to the workplace or you're starting your day at home. How can I do my work, my vocation, in a way today that pleases Christ and loves my neighbor? How can I love God and my neighbor through what I'm doing here? Because it matters. Third, cultural engagement matters, or whatever we want to call that. Engaging with our broader community and society and culture that we're a part of. It matters. Christians have had a lot of very unhelpful postures toward the culture, right? Some flee the culture. They turn in on themselves, form cloisters, become ingrown churches and communities. Other Christians fight the culture. They war against it. They fight for parts of the culture to acknowledge Christ and acknowledge God's Word, even when they have no interest of doing so and wouldn't do it from the heart. Other Christians don't flee or fight. They conform. They just become like the culture. They're no different. They're influenced by the world, seeing uh, sin is normal, righteousness is abnormal. They conform to that. They embrace the world's values rather than God's. And so their sexuality, their humor, their work, their view of those things is shaped by the world and not God. But there's an alternative to these postures, and it's this, to live as a faithful witness, to live as a faithful presence and witness in the world, to live as a, to bear witness to the inbreaking power of God and the new creation that's dawned in the midst of this old, broken creation, to walk in good works, to love, to lovingly engage in the culture. And this means lovingly and faithfully uh, serving in government roles and community leadership roles and service roles, as many of you do, and helping to shape a culture of law that serves people and honors justice. It means we work with art and music and entertainment in a way that reflects God's values. Living a good life, a life of good works, propels us to not have a 
pub, a private Christian life, but also a public Christian life, to do public good for our neighbors across the street and across the nation and across the globe. And when we do this, we, you know, we may not transform culture. God's up, that's up to God. But what we will do is bear witness to the transforming power of God in the world that's already changing because of the new creation. And it'll serve as an invitation to others to come join. And finally, the life of good works flows from steady faith in Jesus. Jesus is the one who came to perfectly embody this life of good works. All of his priorities and values were right. He entered into the world with its backwards values, and he completely disrupted it. And he came to us even when we were spiritually dead. And he carried us along by his grace. When we were carried along by the world, uh, he has come into us, into our world to rescue us. He died for us. He rose for us. He gave us his spirit to transform us and to carry us along by a new influence. And he's going to return to make all things new. And so now we get to enjoy this new creation and this new culture of a local church and this new life of good works that he's given to us. So also, if you've been thinking through this time, I think I am influenced by the world and the flesh and maybe even spiritual forces in ways that I didn't know before. Maybe you've been thinking this morning that that's you and you don't know yet this inbreaking power of God's grace in your life. Then I want you to know this morning you can. Uh, you don't bring this about in your own heart. The Lord has to do it. And so you just come to Jesus. You turn away from that flesh perspective of self-centeredness. You put out empty hands of faith to Jesus and you trust him for forgiveness and for this transformation. And then you walk out as a new creation. And I'd love to talk to you about that. Many people here would. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that this is the world you made and this is the plan you have and that all of history is moving toward this beautiful end where all things are made new and set right. And we thank you that you have caused Jesus to rise from the dead and you've united to us to him in faith. And so we pray that we would either for the first time this morning trust you and be transformed and forgiven or for the 10,000th time. We pray that we as a church family would be increasingly conformed to the image of Christ, increasingly eager and zealous to live a life of good works for your namesake and your glory because you're so kind to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We stand and receive a benediction from God's Word. And as a reminder, if you're newer to Zionsville Fellowship, we'd love to meet you at Meet ZF right after the service here in the library, just to the right of the entrance. So here's a benediction from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip us with everything good that we may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.